Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. Okay, we are on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are happy to welcome Henry Mott Munoz, the founder of, I'm going to give him my best shot here, education.ph to the show, because it's not spelled the way I would expect it. Anyway, Henry, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And, uh, you know, thank you so much, Michael, for having us here today. And um, to answer your question, so it's pronounced education.ph. So it's uh, spelled in Tagalog, which is, you know, the Filipino national language. So that's the proper spelling. That is the proper spelling. It is not a typo. <laughs> it's funny you say this, right? So I have this other show called e-commerce undercover, and we had this guy from Germany on and the name of his company is Q R E U Z and he pronounced it cruise. And I just thought, you know, ever since Tumblr, you know, without the E, then there's all this crazy spelling with K's meant to be Q's and all this other stuff. And I said to him, cruise, is this just internet spelling? And he said, no, there's actually a neighborhood in Berlin <laughs> with that spelling. And then I just <laughs> used it because that's the neighborhood where my company is. And this is why you always have to ask, right? Because as my grandmother used to say, you learn something new every day. Anyway, I like that. So that's the Tagalog spelling and obviously means education. Yes, exactly. Got it. So it's a, it's a pretty, pretty useful, all-encompassing name that uh, allows us to do different things in, in the education space. I love it. I love it a lot. Okay. Before we get into the main part of this conversation, can we get a little bit of your background as well for some context? Sure. So... I am half Filipino, half French. I grew up between Europe and the Philippines. You know, very close to both to both routes, and uh, spent a lot of time, um, obviously, coming back and discovering different bits of the Philippines. And I always wanted to come back to do something with, um, you know, with social impact. But obviously, you know, wanted to, uh, you know, start my career a bit first. And so I, you know, did economics in London, uh, studied economics and economic history. Okay. Uh, went on to to join, um, you know, Goldman Sachs to do some investment banking, did some private equity at Bing Capital, and when I was doing my MBA um, in the U.S. on a scholarship, that's when I got the idea for uh, for doing education in the Philippines. Where were you working at Goldman Sachs? I was in the London team uh, covering healthcare in Europe. So no medical background, but a pretty fascinating sector to look at for and three did, years. Did you, were you at Goldman before you got your MBA or after? Before, before. So I, I was at Goldman before, and then I transferred to Bing Capital. Um, and then they ended up sending me to Harvard for, uh, for two years. What was it like being, getting an MBA at Harvard all the while thinking about how am I going to build a better education system in the Philippines, right? Because this has to be the complete bifurcation of education, yeah? It, it was quite interesting, actually, because in a way, obviously, you know, the makeup of, uh, of any business school um, tends to be quite um, corporate heavy, right? Whether you say corporate or finance or it's, it's very much private sector. And so I think initially it was a lot easier to strike conversations about finance, uh, about private equity, about uh, investment banking. But the, the beauty of being in a um, multi-campus city was that there are actually a lot of folks who were in education right. um, or a lot of folks who were in tech. Um, so I ended up, you know, I, I would speak to, to students from MIT, to folks from the, the Graduate School of Education at Harvard, 
um, even people at you know, the Harvard Kennedy School. There was an innovation lab by Harvard University where I got a lot of tremendous entrepreneurship advice and mentorship. So the, the ecosystem was there. You just had to, to dig a little bit deeper to find it. But there were a lot of very helpful individuals uh, who helped me as, uh, as the idea kind of like took hold in my head. I want to explore this idea of a multi-campus city. I think Boston is one of these cities that people don't understand so well, right? All they hear about from the outside is, you know, the Red Sox and maybe the Patriots. But the reality is that during the time when school is in session, the city could actually be twice the size as it would normally be. I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but because of that, in the old days, right, it was the original Silicon Valley in a way, because Route 128, which runs very close to Boston, is where big companies like Lotus were founded and stuff like that. So there is this history there. And actually, Massachusetts ends up being a very liberal place, too. So the ed tech with the tech and all these students around must have been an incredible place for you to get an MBA, no? Yeah, so I, I think I was very fortunate to be in that environment for two years. I think what's also quite interesting is, you know, to your point, the interesting thing about EdTech is you've got tech on one hand, which obviously, you know, is something that's quite recent in the, yeah. in the timeline of history, right? It's, you know, you're talking about the last few decades at most. But then you look at education and it's arguably probably one of the oldest industries in the world alongside with agriculture. And so you, you've got a lot of very deeply ingrained practices. Um, and what's interesting is that there's actually quite a, quite a fair bit of innovation uh, in Boston and in Massachusetts in general. And so I actually ended up learning quite a few things uh, from folks who have nothing to do with ed tech, uh, who have never set foot in the Philippines and probably never will, but we're working on different ways of, of um, fostering innovation and in education in the K-12 system in the U.S. And that was very, very interesting exposure for me. So when you went to school in Boston, was the idea there to get out of investment banking, get out of you know, finance and private equity? and then take all this stuff that you were learning back to the Philippines and build an education business? Or did that kind of develop over time? Do you know what I mean? Yes, so the goal was uh, always to move back to the Philippines, uh, but I was very sector agnostic. Uh, and so actually, if I think about the discovery process, I had basically two objectives, which was go back to the Philippines and build something with impact at scale using tech. These were my two uh, my two criteria. The third one was obviously, you know, paying off my student loan, which is why sure. I stayed at Bain Capital for an extra two years. <laughs> I but I looked at all sorts of sectors. I looked at real estate. I looked at agriculture. I looked at healthcare. I looked at art. I looked at uh, the government sector. I looked at education. I think the reason I ended up getting quite attracted to education was so many of the um, social issues that I was interested in addressing. Um, had their roots in education. You know, you fix education system, a lot of things will follow after that. And so that from an impact perspective, education just made a lot of sense. And then from a business perspective, uh, you know, putting on my, my finance hat, I felt the industry dynamics were super interesting. This was something where, you know, government spends a third of its uh, budget. It's the largest uh, government expenditure in the country. It's a massive private industry. You know, we have twice as many colleges per capita as the U.S., even though we have a tenth of the GDP per capita. It's just a very large $25 billion industry, and it's very inefficient and ineffective. So for me, from an impact perspective and from a business opportunity perspective, it kind of felt like a, a very interesting opportunity to look at. Where does your desire to have impact come from? I get you know, if you work, I worked at Goldman Sachs too. That's why I asked you where and when you were there, right? We, I don't think we overlapped. 
um, probably because I'm seven times your age. But <laughs> but if you're working at Goldman and you're working at Bain, right? You're a business person. You're making money. You're trying to make money. Where does this idea of I want to go back to school, learn about some stuff, and then come back to the Philippines and have impact from? I get the fact that you want to come back and start a business, but this impact thing is is great. But where does it come from? So I would give a hundred percent of the credit to my family. My my mother's family uh, had a long tradition of of giving back, and a lot of them were doing it in a in a pretty quiet way. But yeah. essentially, I grew up either you know having you know family meals, family dinners, uh, family reunions with folks who had done everything from fighting corruption to fighting smuggling to fighting for human rights. I have relatives who went into exile when they were fighting for democracy. I have relatives who were on, um, you know, death lists by the army when they were protesting for human rights. And you just grow up hearing about the courage that others had. Yep. And obviously, you know, very privileged upbringing. I went to private high schools, then, you know, worked in, in, in cushy, you know, cushy. I mean, finance is cushy. You know, <laughs> if you work long hours, sure, but it's, it's pretty it's cushy. cushy. Yeah, I did it. I know. Exactly. And so, so the, there, was, there was no pressure, but I think it was just like exposure from a very young age to hearing about how you can give back in, in very different ways. But everyone was always giving back in some, some, some form or another. And what's interesting is my family actually always gave me the advice because I actually wanted to move back much earlier to the Philippines. My, at some point, I tried to move back when I was 18. I wanted to become a journalist as a high school graduate. And my, my family's advice was, come back with ideas, not ideals. And so that became the question I'd ask myself every year. I've got the ideals, fine, but like, what's my big idea? What am I coming back with? Okay. And so that's why I thought of moving back when I was 18 and I only moved back when I was 28. So it took me a solid decade to figure out uh, what to do in the Philippines. Whoever said come back with ideas and not with ideals, I need to meet this person because that, for a bunch of different reasons, but that's definitely the title of this episode. I want to get back to some of these statistics that you quoted about the government. You said it's what one third of the government budget is dedicated to education. Did I get that number right? Yes, absolutely. That's it's huge. the biggest expenditure. Yes, it's huge. But do you think that governments, because they spend so much money on education, that there's an end goal for them? Do you know what I mean? Like, so I feel like the end goal in the United States is to prepare is to prepare people to work at big companies. Do you know what I mean? So I look at the way the education system works. I think about this a lot, right? So we don't go to school in the summer in the U.S. because that was harvest time. Like you said, there are all these embedded things in the education system that exist because it started hundreds of years ago. What do you think the goal is right now of the government? And then what do you think the mission of education should be if it's different, if that makes sense? Sure. So... The Philippines has a fairly broken education system. Okay. So uh, let me share two stats with you. Please. From a academic performance perspective, for, for your listeners who are familiar with the PISA rankings, it's essentially an international comparison that ranks different countries in terms of the educational attainment of high school students in those countries. And they try to standardize it to basically allow you to understand how is your country doing, say, compared to... France or the UK or Japan or, or Mexico. Yep. Um, the Philippines was included in the rankings over the last two years. So the results were published during the pandemic. Okay. And unfortunately, we were at the bottom. Not average, not below average, 
not bottom quartile, bottom. Wow. And so it's it's a very sobering fact. And you know, for some people, it was uh, obvious. For others, I think it came as a shock. Really, but it did confirm that from a literacy and numeracy and you know science understanding, unfortunately, the average Filipino high school student is woefully uh, undereducated. And so when a, when a Filipino student turns 18, um, you can argue, you know, what's the right comparison tool, but, you know, they definitely are not on par with an average 18 year old in better education systems. Got it. Uh, and we're talking about delays of like, you know, two, three, four years kind of depends which social group you're in. So from an academic perspective, our students are underprepared and you know, you don't, you don't build a country by having everyone really good at trigonometry. But if your population doesn't have strong foundational skills in terms of literacy, numeracy, and some other core subjects, you're going to have a big problem when it comes from, you know, their integration as citizens, not just as employees, right? How can you expect someone to, you know, use their vote wisely and pay their taxes and understand how to take care of their own health and their yep. family's health? if they don't have any of these foundational skills. So from a foundational education perspective, the Philippines does poorly. Then if you look at education and say, education is only a stepping stone, it's not an end game. And a stepping stone is people having fulfilling careers. And if not fulfilling, at least successful, right? And again, the Philippines goes quite poorly. The funnel from students who turn 18 to those who actually finish high school at 18. And by the way, schooling is free all the way until 18 in the Philippines. You can go to public primary and secondary school and not have to pay any tuition. There's obviously other costs um, like sure. transportation and food, but from a tuition perspective, you can, you can do tuition free all the way until 18. When you look at the number of kids who turn 18, which is about 2 million plus every year, then you adjust for those who don't get to finish high school those who don't get to pursue higher ed, those who pursue higher ed but drop out, those who graduate but don't find a job, you are left with roughly two to 300,000 students. So your drop-off rate is 80 to 90%, yeah. right? And that feeds into youth unemployment rate of more than 30%. So from that perspective, the education system is also broken. right? And so you know, you're, you're not preparing them enough academically and you're not getting them the jobs. Can I just jump in for a second? Because okay. yes. I think you'll agree that it's actually more important than just having a job. You mentioned, and I love this terminology, literacy and numeracy, right? But also the societal impact of 80 to 90%, pick a number in between there, right? If it's two to 300,000 people. Because if you're not educated properly, and this is true for every country, right? We could say it for where I live, anywhere, it doesn't matter. It means then that your participation in society as a whole is also unfulfilling and suboptimal. Is that fair? Right. So it's not just about getting a job and providing for your family or providing for yourself if you choose not to have a family, but it's your contribution to society or your detrimental contribution to society as well. No? Yes. And, and I think I would even take it a step further, but it's, Go. you know, your ability to have a, a fulfilling life. Life. Yes. I know, at, the, at, life. at the end of the day, you know, we're uh, despite going to the, you know, going to pretty capitalist institutions, at the end of the day, you know, our role as humans is not just to be a production unit for some company, it's Correct. to lead fulfilling lives. And that's just much harder to do if you're not given the right education. Right. And so to, I, want to go, I want to go back to your original question, by the way, which is, what is the role of government in education and how is the Filipino government tackling it? 
I think what's tough for the Filipino government, and they're aware of this, is there's a lot of backlog of issues, right? So the previous administration, their biggest problem was literally physically building schools because a lot of students didn't have schools to go to or the schools they went to didn't have like four walls and a roof and basic sanitation and chairs. So there was just a lot of like physical catch up in terms of infrastructure building. A lot of what the last administration and the current one have done was just to increase teacher training and compensation because teachers were paid peanuts right. and overworked. And so how do, you, how do you expect to build a great education system if you're underpaying uh, the very people who you rely on? To well, if the whole delivery so mechanism is dilapidated, yeah. Correct. And so, so there's been a lot of investment in, I would say, some of the more basic things. But to their credits, it almost doesn't matter who gets elected in the Philippines. Every administration has always been very clearly pro-education from a expenditure perspective. Okay. So what needs to change besides building the physical infrastructure? I mean, you can't pay teachers enough, really, to be fair, if you, if you know what being in a public school is like. I went to public school for most of my life. But what needs to change or to adapt to help solve some of these problems that society is having because you end up with, out of 2 million students, only 200 to 300,000 of them are properly educated, yeah? You know, all countries go through stages and in a way, yeah. it's the, the Philippines can now go through this stage. If there's a willingness to spend already by government, so that's done. Yep. There's a willingness to spend by parents, including as they get rich, and it's across socioeconomic groups. And there's no gender bias in the Philippines, which is fantastic. That you is know, we don't have this issue of like only boys can go to schools or the societies go. It's actually one of the most gender equal in the world. I think we're the eighth most gender equal ahead of many, you know, Western countries. The, the issue now becomes how do you move from large macro investments to curriculum change to delivery mechanism change, right? Uh, I think COVID exposed that, unfortunately, you know, we will need to invest a lot more as a country in terms of hybrid delivery. Even as we will eventually return to school physically, um, you will need some capacity to manage schools, manage learning, manage learners uh, online. And there, you know, you're talking about like a whole different ballgame in terms of like government investment, government training. Sorry to interrupt you, but now you shift this investment from the physical like plant and equipment of a school, meaning desks, chairs, walls, air conditioning, and stuff like that, to this digitally delivered educational system, I'm guessing. But now you reintroduce access problems, right? Because the more wealthy you are, the more access you have to connectivity to the devices that you need for education. And if you're not going to a school every day, I have to imagine that your mom and dad, if you're less well off, are saying, take care of this, take care of your sister, do all this other kind of stuff that gets in the way, right? Yes, absolutely. And this, and this digital divide as well. The other thing that people forget is that teaching offline is very different from teaching online. And teaching is difficult. You know, it's, and I'm, I'm sure it sounds like a bit of a platitude, but no, it's, it, hard. it's something that we feel, we feel very strongly about education, which is, there's a reason people have to study for years before they can become a certified teacher. It's not, it's not difficult to understand the math that gets taught in primary school. It's very difficult to teach it to primary school kids. Right. And so, and the thing is teaching, I, I'm not an educator myself, but I, you know, we, 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 we work with educators every day and teaching in a physical classroom is just very different than teaching online. 
So not only must you, you know, physically upgrade the infrastructure, and there in the Philippines is a laggard, but you must also teach students how to learn online, which is different. Yep. And then you must teach teachers how to teach online, which again is different. And so in a way, it's almost, you know, it's been very tough because there was all this investment by these different administrations. And we really felt like we we're just, you know, we're starting to close the gap. Uh, we we're improving the physical delivery of education in the Philippines. And then COVID hit. And then suddenly, you know, you're, you're almost pushed back decades in terms of equity uh, and equality. And then the, the final thing I would add, though, is on top of all this physical investment plus uh, just in general infrastructure de development, you also need to adapt the curriculum. And that actually was a problem already pre-COVID. You know, teaching the curriculum in a modern way was already a challenge for, for, the, for the education system in the Philippines. And it was just highlighted by COVID when suddenly parents could hear the lessons at home and a lot of parents' reactions, both for public and private schools, was what? What the hell is this curriculum? And <laughs> what are you teaching my kid? And how are you even teaching my kid? So what what does need to change there? This again, I haven't been in a school in a while. My daughter graduated, but you know, to be fair, she had a privileged education as well, right? So I I don't think it's the norm and I don't think it's average. But what needs to change in the curriculum and kind of why? In a way, I'm almost more curious about the why, right? If we talked about making people productive members of society, not just living a good career, but having a good life, what needs to change? Well, it, it, it's a fantastic question. And it goes down to what skills, what are you really trying to teach? Right. Are you trying to teach someone, you know, the table of elements? Is it all about really understanding photosynthesis perfectly? Or do you want them to teach, or and you know, are you trying to teach them how to memorize a lot of information, or do you accept that you know that's something that Wikipedia does very well? And actually, what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach someone how to think critically. Uh, you want them to be able to put different concepts together. You want them to be able to express themselves, not 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 even just express themselves, uh, but communicate in a way where you can actually convince someone to to do something. Right. So it's. It's moving from this, you know, and it's often repeated. I, I cannot tell you how many education conferences I've been to where half the panel is complaining about we need to move away from learning by rote and we need to teach kids how to think critically. Right. It's everyone's holy grail. It's also incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> uh, but, that, but that's what we need to do. Uh, and that's what I've literally heard for the last seven years and pro probably every single ed tech panel I've, I've, I've I've listened to or been on. So what does your company do? I'm going to try to pronounce this properly. Education? Did I get it? Was I even close? No. You were very, you, you got it very well. Congrats. So you're a fast learner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lifelong learner. I feel like I should get some kind of badge. But what, <laughs> what do you do as a team to try to address all of these things that you're talking about? Sure. So we... We always go back to what problem are we trying to solve? Go ahead. And obviously, you know, it's what's interesting is education is a is a multi-stakeholder industry. Sure. And uh, you know, the cuter way of saying it is that it takes a village to raise a child. Right. But that village, you know, is basically a lot of different entities uh, and stakeholders. We we try to approach it from both a macro and micro perspective. So that's kind of like the economist, the the failed economist in me. Uh, that thinks about this way. 
from a macro perspective, we ask ourselves, you know, what kind of interventions can we do that will have impact at scale? One of the, the issues that we, we face in education is that some of the best interventions do not scale, scale well, right? If you get 10 very bright, hardworking people around one child, right. then yes, that child will probably have a much better educational outcome, but you can't really justify that from an ROI perspective. And so, you know, just to give you some background, the Philippines has 27 million learners, you know, that, that's more than the majority of countries in the world. And that's, that's just people who are in school. Right. Um, so you're looking at the K-12 system plus college, uh, that's about 27 million that are in school. And if you start adding people who should be in school, but have dropped out, you're, you're going above 30 mil. And so it's, it's an incredibly large group. And the question we, ask, we always ask ourselves is, how do you actually reach not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of students. Right. So that's... That's scale, right? Yeah. That's scale. That's, that's the first thing that we look at. The second thing that we look at is we go back to what's our vision for an educated child, right? Right. And, and different companies have different visions. And again, you know, the students will need more than one ed tech platform to get ahead in life. But we, we go back to our view of a successful citizen will need three things. They will need basic foundational academic skills. Uh, and this goes back to, you know, literacy and numeracy. Uh, you basically need kids, you know, in, in plain terms, who would do well in a PISA ranking competition. Yep. So that's, that's number one. The second thing is you need them to make the right education choices. Now, when I say right, what we mean is education choices that match their skills, their career aspirations, and their personal constraints, whether it be geographical location, budget, time commitment. So that's the second thing that we, we look at. And the third thing that we look at is equipping students with the soft skills, the life skills, the 21st century skills, whatever you want to call it, but essentially what's not taught in the classroom, but what makes you a successful citizen. Again, can I jump in here? So this stuff should be taught. I mean, how many times in your life have you said, in a certain situation, separate from the math, separate from the writing skills and the language skills that you've acquired. Like, I wish somebody had just taught me that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why we started like one of those verticals at Education, because when you have some of those topics, everyone benefits from them being taught. Yeah. But very few are incentivized or are focused on it. So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples, right? So at education, so I'll, I'll just walk you through the three verticals and I'll just start with the one, with the one around soft skills. We have modules on financial literacy and that's important, but you can't blame parents for not teaching their kids financial literacy because 92% of Filipino parents are financially literate themselves. So how can they teach something they don't know? Right. We teach sex education. Sex education is a taboo topic in the Philippines. We are the only Christian country in Asia. We are very conservative. We're the only country in the world that doesn't have divorce along with the Vatican. There's two countries in the world that don't allow for divorce. It's the Philippines and the Vatican. Did not know that. The Vatican is the size of you know, a small neighborhood in Manila. The Philippines is 110 million people. Yep. And so you can imagine that a country that hasn't come to terms with divorce definitely hasn't come to terms with sex ed. Uh, right. And so we also have one of the highest teenage pregnancy rates in the world. So can you teach sex education through education? Yes, we can, can, we do. And so, and so we do, you know, we've partnered with some of the best NGOs out there 
internationally recognized ones that focus on sex education. And we've been running modules for thousands of students, uh, teaching them age-appropriate sex education. And for me, you know, this is kind of like a classic example of everyone benefits. Yeah. You know, society benefits, the students benefit. But sometimes just nobody wants to, to, take, to take on that role. But part of what Education does is we find stakeholders who do want to take that role. So on financial literacy, we've got some great partners in terms of banks and insurance companies who are very happy to be part of that advocacy because sure it helps you know, them as well. It it helps them too. And they, you know, and if if you're gonna give back, you might as well give back in a way that's you know aligned to what your your company sure. does. Sure, sure. Same, you know, with sex education, we work with contraception companies who are very <laughs> happy to like promote all our education. Yeah. So so that's kind of on the you know on the the soft scales. You know, we the Philippines is facing an election this year and so we run civic education modules. And you'd be amazed, you know, we've partnered with NGOs that focus on this. Uh, we've partnered with very famous artists in the Philippines who care about, uh, you know, civic education. So there's, so that's kind of like on the soft skill side. The, the the second vertical that we have, which is the first one that we started with, is around guidance and counseling and making the right choice. And it's actually what drives most of our traffic to the site. You know, we reach roughly eight million students a year in the Philippines. I would say more than 90% of them come to us for that side. What does that mean though, guidance? Sure, so it's uh, it's very simple. It's what should I study? Where should I study? And how does it fit into my career objectives? And if you don't have career objectives, we help you figure out some career objectives, some okay. education objectives. And so it's around choosing senior high school for you know the grade 11 and 12, what topics to take. It's about choosing college, where to study, what to study. Should I look at tech vault? Should I consider online? Should I go abroad? And then how does this all feed into a career? So that's, that's, the, that's the biggest form of engagement that we have with students. Interesting. So the third one actually was born out of the pandemic. Seeing just how many students were struggling in school academically, and then that PISA ranking coming out. You know, We've been in the ed tech space for many, many years. And we always knew that the Philippines had a poorly performing education system. I think even we were shocked at the ranking of the Philippines, right? There is, there's knowing you're not doing well, and then there's being told that you're one of the worst in the world. Right. And that is the kind of wake-up call that no one likes to get, but it is a wake-up call. And so for us, it became clear that even if we teach all these soft skills, even if we help people you know, choose the right senior high school and get into the best college possible, if they don't have basic academic K to twelve, it doesn't matter skills. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so that's why we've now entered the academic support space. Uh, we're focusing on English and math, but we have plans of going into other subjects as well. And this is just focused on K to twelve students. Is that like after school style tutoring? Yes. It's not like traditional juku where you go there and just like get drilled stuff like they do in Japan. It's more just like you may be having an issue, and if you need special, not special, if you need more attention. We'll give you that attention as well. Yes. And also, so the way we're designing it, it's been quite interesting for us because we've seen the, the Philippine education system is very unequal. Yeah. There's actually going to be very different use cases for our tutoring. You will have students who you know, are doing well in school, go to a high quality private school and are themselves good students in that school. And they just, you know, they just want advancement. It's not about catching up. It's about getting ahead. Right. You will have people who just want to do better you know if if your child is kind of like at the bottom of their class and you just want them to 
you know, to at least, you know, get within the average, then you, then you'll have these classes. And we also have students, frankly, where uh, we are going to essentially try to bring them up to their age level, right? So you'll have a 14 year old student who has the reading or math uh, skills of an 11 year old. Right. And it keeps getting passed in the system because the Philippines is a pretty lax system in high school. And so even students who don't really reach the required skill level still get passed. And that's why by the time kids are 18, some of them are literally three or four years behind. So you mentioned ROI earlier, right? It's expensive if you, and having impacted scale at some level can be expensive. I'll never forget the conversation that I had with Alvin Wang Graylin, who I believe is the president of HTC in China. Yeah, I think so. Right, and HTC runs this business called Vive, right? So it's the VR, AR, whatever you want to call it, headsets. And I remember having him on one of my shows. This is now years ago. And I really had prepped for a conversation about gaming, right? And I was, did not anticipate the direction in which he was going to go. And he said they did a test in like Western, Northwestern China. And they did this immersive teaching. And they split the class. I think it was 50 kids. They split them into the top 25 performing students and the bottom 25 performing students. And the bottom 25, they gave this immersive sort of educational experience using the VR headsets teaching the same subjects and the same topics. And at the end of this test, at the end of this experiment, excuse me, they tested the kids and the worst performing student who got the VR headset and the immersive education experience outperformed the best performing student prior. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not a panacea, but how do we square that circle, right? Where... We know that technology can have a huge impact, but the ROI isn't necessarily there. There's got to be somewhere in the middle where we can use technology to improve the educational level. Like you said, take that kid who's a 14-year-old but reading at a 10- or 11-year-old level and increase their ability to perform without having to spend thousands of dollars on this immersive technology, yeah? Yeah, so it, it's something we, we think about all the time at Education, both from an impact and even from a business perspective, right? right. The Philippines is a, it's an emerging market. So it's a developing country, which means that, you know, even our definition of a middle class is not that wealthy by international standards, but people have funds and are willing to spend them on education. So it's how do you develop a product right. that's affordable? And I think that's our, that's always been our obsession at education and you know we we have kind of different ways of achieving that one of them has been where where can you get corporate interest and so for example all our soft skills training you know the reality is very few parents in the philippines would be able to afford teaching civic ed and financial literacy sure. or sex ed like you know it's just it's it's a bit of like a, a bottom priority if you're first trying to get your child to have decent grades and then get them into college and so that whole sector, we've basically gotten it financed by external parties. So it's completely free for students. And that's been fantastic. On the advising side as well, we've been able to, to do a lot of uh, external funding. And then we, we, we are offering now private options for both. But one of the ways you make sure that you have impacted scale is you should always have a very solid free offering. In terms of academic support, what we're doing now is obviously, you know, we can't offer one-on-one -on -one tutoring for free. Uh, that's, that's not a great business model. No. But what we are doing is, you know, we are, we, we've, and we've seen this done, by the way, in Indonesia and in India, and we talked to some of the folks who are doing it. 
there's ways where you can either teach very large scale live classes. There are ways of creating asynchronous content. You're not necessarily offering the one-on-one teaching, but you can get your very best teachers to produce materials and you can give those materials for free or at an extremely low cost. Right. So it's always about how do you scale content in a way that's easily accessible, not just from a cost perspective, but from an infrastructure perspective. So, you know, the Philippines is years away from being able to do VR, but there's been massive improvements in internet capacity in the last two, three years. And so asynchronous online video delivery, very possible. And so that's one of the things that we're looking at. So it's, yeah, you, you can just, you just have to work around the existing infrastructure. And the benefit is because you're in a developing market, the infrastructure improves every year right. without you having to lift a finger. It should, right? You mentioned this idea of being a multi-stakeholder, I'll just call it an entity, right? Education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a five-sided market. The parents care, the kids care, the businesses care, the government cares, society. Like it's just... It the is teachers. Multi- yeah, teachers. Everybody cares, right? How do you yeah. work together with companies like, I don't know, AWS, right? That runs a big ed tech accelerator program. They have something called EdStart. Do you work with companies like that at all to create yes. value for some of your students too? Absolutely. And so the, the, what we're always trying to do is we, we want to build an ecosystem where everyone can kind of plug and play and... Mm-hmm where they meet their own personal requirements, but unwittingly contribute to a better education system overall in Philippines. <laughs> unwittingly. Because you know, you can't because you can't just go to people and say, like, look, like you have to join us. We've got this amazing advocacy. Yeah, that, that's not, not how people make decisions no. and spend time and money. Nope. So when it comes to a company like AWS, they're actually one of our partners. We're part of okay. Ed Start. Love the work that they're doing. And it's actually been quite easy to work with them because they're very progressive and they just want more and more people to get into cloud computing. And so what we've done with them is we, I think we've run, I, I can't even count how many programs we've done with them now. Like they've been our partner since 2018. Yeah, we're now entering our fifth year of partnership with them. Wow. And we just do a lot around uh, teaching cloud skills for Filipino students and Filipino young professionals. AWS obviously benefits because, you know, the more cloud specialists there are, the easier it is for, for companies to migrate to the cloud. And yep. That's great for the top line. The students benefit because they're getting all this amazing training and mentorship, and they can basically get jobs in the cloud computing space, which you know pay very very well. And companies in the Philippines are happy because there are you know more people who are um, able to to help with their cloud migration. Yeah, the win win is there, right? The win win is there, but you have to design it that way, right? And so part of our job at Education is to keep designing win win. So. Even with teachers, right? How are we getting teachers to, to teach on education as tutors for a tutoring system? Well, you know, we handle all the marketing and payment and customer service for them. Uh, we provide training. Uh, we give them, we create the content for them so they don't have to spend hours creating lesson plans. And because everything's online, you know, as a tutor, you can basically like work from home, not be stuck in traffic and not spend two hours running around Manila to do a one hour session with a right, child right. and bonus, you don't get to expose yourself to COVID. <laughs> so, you know, there's, but, but again, you know, you, you need to have a very clear, there needs to be a very clear benefit to everyone who joins education. And that's the way we always tell the team to design it. Like people shouldn't join because they want to do good. People should join because it makes sense for them to be part of the ecosystem. 
And that's how we have to design the journey for a student, a parent, a teacher, a corporate, a local government, a foundation, another ed tech player. If you're reaching 8 million learners a year, 8 into 27, it's not 20, it's more than 25, almost 30% of the students you're to more like that you're trying to reach, right? How do you fund all this? So we actually broke even last year. And so that's, that's been a, one of the silver linings of COVID. It, it just makes you laser focused on your union economics. Yeah. Sure. Um, we obviously initially when we were running losses, uh, we were, we got investments. So we've already done four rounds of investments. We're actually, well, we'll, we'll be announcing another round uh, in the, in the not so distant future. Okay. But so, so we've had investor backing since 2016, but really the business model has been um, everything we run has to be on a positive unit economics perspective. So all the, the programs that are backed by companies like AWS or, or clients like Unilever or L'Oreal or AXA uh, insurance, et cetera, these are, are run profitably and then the products are completely free to use for students. And then for all the, the academic support that we're doing, obviously we are, we are charging parents for the, those lessons. Understood. So we have a B2B business model and we have a, and we now have a B2C business model as well. Good stuff. Look, I'm going to let you go. I've taken up a lot of your time today. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? The, the best is quite old school, but it's probably email. I would, uh, I would always encourage people to drop us a note on uh, hmontmunoz at education.ph. Um, and then obviously you can kind of follow what we do on, uh, on LinkedIn. We're decently active there. Great. And um, we're always looking for, uh, for partners interested in, in joining our ecosystem. Our, our mission is quite simple. You know, we want to build the Baiju of the Philippines. We want to build the, the biggest and best ed tech platform that's native to the Philippines. And so to do that, we clearly will work with, uh, with multiple partners. Awesome. I want to thank you, Henry Mott Munoz, the founder of education.ph, for coming on the show and doing this today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Michael. And, um, you know, all, all the best with everything you're working on. And thanks again for, for thinking of us. We really appreciate it.